The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Fanny Mechanic Show. It is the last episode of 2020. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of superannuation health. We go deep with financial planner William Ezzy. Will opens up about all things superannuation. That is the money you accumulate for your retirement when you are working, regardless of where you live in the world. Obviously, our focus today will be Australia. With Will, I discuss the importance of financial education. Pretty much the earlier in life you get it, the better. What is superannuation? What is super choice? What are the different types of super funds? How do you choose the right one for you? Australia has superannuation, but what do other countries have? Using superannuation to pay for medical expenses such as IVF or weight loss surgery or orthopedic surgery, how do you do this? Has this been more common over COVID? Why can't we ignore superannuation? Ethical, environmental, social or governance investment, that is ESG principles, what are they? Should we care? Insurances through superannuation. What are the types? There's death only, death, total, permanent disability and income protection. Do you know about those? Which ones are the right ones for you? Does your super fund invest in companies such as tobacco, arms, nuclear energy, gambling, alcohol, fossil fuels, adult entertainment? Should you care if companies source a significant proportion of their revenue from these? How do you find out about how your super fund invests your money? When should you see a financial planner regarding your superannuation? What are some of the top performing Australian superannuation funds for 2020? How about binding beneficiaries? Are they a big deal? How about super fund fees? Are they a bigger deal? By retirement age in Australia, what is the average a woman has in her superannuation compared to a man and why is there a difference? A little bit about William Ezzy, my guest on today's show. Will joined DPM as a private wealth consultant in early 2016. He is a certified financial planner and has 15 years experience in the financial services industry in Australia and the UK, which has allowed him to work closely with a very client base. At DPM, Will is responsible for providing comprehensive and tailored financial and investment advice to his clients. He is passionate about helping his clients to increase their financial knowledge. I'll say that again because it's so important. Financial knowledge. Understand their options and implement long-term strategies to ensure they are in the best financial position to achieve their goals from the start of their careers to achieving financial independence. Will has an in-depth knowledge across all aspects of financial planning and provides advice on areas including superannuation, investments, retirement planning, cash flow, and structuring. His qualifications include a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in finance, Masters of Applied Finance majoring in financial planning, and he's a certified financial planner. He does come with a general advice disclaimer, and that is, please remember that the information discussed here is of general nature and is not intended to serve as personal advice. DPM Financial Services recommends you obtain advice concerning specific matters before making a decision. I hope you enjoy my chat with William Ezzy. 
William Ezzy, thank you for joining us on the Fanny Mechanic Show to talk about superannuation. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be thinking, uh, why, Tash, are you talking about super when you are a medical doctor? And I think once we've had a, a discussion, people will further understand why. But uh, I feel and, and I see daily in my practice the stresses that people go through uh in regards to finance and um, stress obviously affects our general health. So I think it's really important that we talk about money, finances, but super's come up quite a bit this year because of COVID and uh, a lot of people um, have looked into uh, looking into their super to pay for things like the IVF procedures and me being an IVF doctor do often tell people about that um, available to them. So thank you for joining us today. Um, I wanted to ask you firstly, something really basic, what is superannuation? For sure, Tash, and firstly, thank you for having me. Uh, superannuation, essentially, I like to think of super as money that you've set aside whilst you're working to ultimately support your lifestyle in retirement. Superannuation can be invested in a whole range of different assets, different investments, but essentially its sole purpose and that comes up a lot in our world uh, in terms of defining super as, as its sole purpose is for your retirement benefits. The sort of structures that, or the way that superannuation works, I like to think of it as in two different worlds. The first world of superannuation is where we're contributing, where we're putting money into superannuation, uh, and it's referred to as accumulation phase. But essentially, whilst we're working, we're adding to superannuation and either pre or post tax, putting money into an accumulation account for which there's a concessional rate of tax paid uh, on income, and that's 15%. The second phase or second world of superannuation is pension phase, which is ultimately when we start accessing our superannuation monies. And, and typically, and we'll touch on this later, but typically the point that we start accessing our superannuation monies is retirement. And we use those monies to fund our lifestyle uh, for our uh, for our time on this uh, on this planet. Um, the superannuation in pension phase, importantly, is tax free. So it's a real carrot at the end of the uh, at the end of the tunnel, or light at the end of the tunnel, if you like. That superannuation in retirement um, can potentially be tax free. Does that depend on how much money you have in super, though, at the time that you retire? It does, Tash, yeah. So rules were brought in a few years ago that basically put a cap on how much you can have in that tax-free pension phase. Uh, so there's not a limit to how much you can have in superannuation, but the maximum you can have when you start your pension is $1.6 million. And so that's become a bit of a, from a financial planning perspective, that's become a bit of a target for us to see clients work towards, and obviously not everyone's going to get there, but work towards getting as much as they can into superannuation up to that $1.6 million cap uh, as an individual. And then ultimately, as I said, having as much money inside a, a tax-free world to help fund their lifestyle in retirement. So how many people are going to have $1.6 million in their super? Of all the people that are actually paying super or have a super fund in Australia, what percentage will get to $1.6 million? It's a good question. Not many would be the answer. Well, to that. Less than two percent or one percent? I'd say less than one percent. Yeah, I had a guess, but but importantly, I mean that you know absolutely not everyone's going to get there. But at the same time, um, 
it's that carrot to be putting money in to save for our retirement and taking advantage of the tax concessions that that work for um, funding our lifestyle. And I think that aspirationally, we'd all like to have as much as we can in superannuation and there's pros and cons of putting money in. But uh, I, I firmly believe that you know, we need to address superannuation across our working life, not just as we reach retirement, and that we should be trying to target um, an amount that will support our lifestyle going forward in, inside that pension phase. So if not many people get to $1.6 million, why don't they reduce that threshold like that? Why don't they make it more reasonable like maybe, I don't know, a million? Uh, why don't they do that? Well, previously there was no cap. And so previously they said, look, it doesn't matter how much you have inside superannuation. Um, and that probably meant from a planning perspective that it didn't matter whether um, a husband or a wife or, or a partner had a higher balance uh, because there was no limit as to how much you had inside that tax-free account. I don't know what the justification for, was. The, the government never came out with a justification for why 1.6. Um, I'd hazard a guess it was working backwards from um, what they deem a cost of living and what they deem you know, compounded out over time for someone's life expectancy and what they deem appropriate in terms of being uh, available to you tax-free anything over and above that or anything in the accumulation phase still attracts a rate of tax. And so when did compulsory super payments come in for employers to their employees? In the late that? 80s, so it was Keating's, one of Keating's measures that, to bring in compulsory superannuation and, and it's something that is still topical now in terms of uh, what that level should be. So it's currently 9.5% for those employed that needs to be contributed or is contributed, mandated to be contributed to their superannuation. Uh, it's been proposed and changed and, and delayed that that figure gets increased to 12%. Uh, and depending on which economist or, or who you read, 9.5% um, might be enough, 12.5% might not be enough. I don't think there's an exact science, but uh, it's been around for some time. So that certainly we will all um, hopefully retire with a level of superannuation, but to what extent really depends on, on what you've done prior to your retirement. And do they provide education at schools about superannuation? Not enough, Tash, I think it would be fair to say. Look, I think financial literacy, financial education is something that is improving over time. Uh, I, I mean, there's been a number of um, columnists and a number of experts out there that have had books. I mean, the Barefoot Investor is one that's been sort of at the top of the bestseller list for a hell of a long time now. But I think people pleasingly, and COVID has again spurned this on, is that people are pleasingly trying to increase their financial knowledge and their understanding of what are the options and helping think about what's the best path forward for me, which is great. So I think anyone that does that, anyone that looks into that, into their own circumstances and into their own superannuation is doing themselves a favour. But I certainly think there's more that can be done in terms of, as you say, schools and, uh, you know, a lot of our clients focus their professional studies in uh, certain areas. And, and, and if we use the medical area as, a, uh, as an example, I think Tash would be fair to say, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it'd be fair to say that the business and financial side of uh, running a practice, for example, isn't taught at university. And, and I think, you know, across the board, we can do more to be aware of 
numbers and, and money. Yeah, my Absolutely. understanding is that most doctors are hopeless at their money. <laughs> Need some training, Tash. Yeah, it'll be better time. Um, and it's because we're so focused and busy, uh, you know, trying to get through our training. And uh, I personally feel that that was the case for me. And, uh, it, yeah, you, it was all a, ma- a matter of prioritising uh, what was important at the time. And, yes, you know, once you get out into the world of private practice, suddenly you are, you know, you have to learn about all of this stuff. And it, it is extremely For overwhelming, sure. especially if you've just finished and you suddenly have to run a practice and be an employer, knowing you have to pay 9.5% super to your employee. And if you don't, you get into big trouble and that, yeah, in the future, you might have to pay more uh, as an employee, um, or employer rather. So yeah, and keeping on top of that is difficult. But uh, I do wish that we had more of this education at high school. You know, that at least there it was mandatory and hopefully one day it will if it's not already mandatory um, financial, uh, you know, skills being taught every single year as a kid progresses through school. Um, because, again, you know, I, again, when I go back to looking at the stress levels that my patients face, financial stuff comes up so much. And I think, wow, if they were better educated about finances, would this be such an issue? Um, so, Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, education absolutely. Couldn't is agree more. just huge. And, and, and look, we mm-hmm. see, Tash, uh, you know, a lot of the client conversations we have, um, they start with a level of, um, a great level of, of unknown, and it's that stress that that causes and, and unknown in relation to their money. I mean, financial planning fundamentally isn't difficult, and I know that's easy for me to say, but it's really understanding about what's coming in and what's going out um, and if what coming, what's coming in, if your cash inflow is greater than your cash outflow, you know, you're earning more than you're spending, well, that's a start. But, you know, I completely agree with what you're saying. That is often where so many people get themselves into trouble too. So the message isn't, isn't getting through. Yeah, it's kind of uh, education 101, isn't it? Because uh, I grew up in a very working class family and um, my parents' mantra was always, don't spend your money. <laughs> and sure. uh, that was it. That was their financial advice to me. And uh, yeah, obviously they came from very poor families, so that that they they had no more than that. Um, but you know, moving forward, in my personal view, yeah, I, I can't get enough of financial education at the moment. Um, so in the world, uh, obviously Australia has super. Uh, what happens in other countries in the world? Do, do other countries have super? What happens in America? What happens in parts of Europe? Yeah, in in various different forms, uh, retirement savings plans exist globally. Uh, 401ks in the US, the UK pension scheme, KiwiSaver in New Zealand, all examples of of what's out there, Um, all with different rules. So there's no definitive rule and and sort of application that we can apply apply globally to superannuation or retirement savings. I, I think what sets the Australian system apart is that it's mandated as we've said, that anyone that is employed um, must contribute 9.5% of their income towards their superannuation and that there's significant tax concessions available uh, for both making contributions and uh, on the earnings payable within superannuation. So we've got that mandated scheme which helps, but, uh, yeah, globally, you know, a whole number of different schemes. And I think, too, it's worth noting there that... um, Anyone, I mean, it'd be great, you know, if we have a pipe dream to retire on a beach in Tahiti or wherever it might be, but worth noting that 
if we are to move overseas, that the money that we have inside superannuation in Australia typically stays inside superannuation in Australia and isn't transferable across um, boundaries globally. Mm. So that often what happens is even if we're to reside overseas, you know, we are on the beach in Tahiti, then we can't um, access our superannuation monies until we reach the uh, access options under Australian law. So it's not transferable, which is interesting. There's a couple of exceptions to that, but by and large, uh, it's it's something that stays inside the country that you earned it. So pretty much if I'm 50, I've retired and I want to take my super to a Greek island, I can't. Be great, but no, correct, you can't. <laughs> so I have to yeah. wait till I'm retired at maybe 67, I think, because that's the age of retirement now. Is that right for women? What is it now? Yeah, so you can access superannuation. That window open up, opens up to accessing currently Tash, at age 60, okay. and that's also subject to retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you can access, access superannuation tax-free. It's possible to access superannuation slightly earlier than that under what we call a transition scheme. Um but I would say age 60 in retirement or age 65 irrespective of retirement okay. is when you can access your superannuation tax-free. So, no, uh, 50 in Inland Greek Islands, you might be having a good time, but your, <laughs> uh, your superannuation is going to be locked away. Um, and can I access pension, the pension, and have super as well? The age pension, the government pension? Yes, yes. definitely. Yeah, so what happens, the age pension, the government pension is determined based upon your income and your assets. Uh, and for anyone owning a home, that is uh, excluding the value of your home, that assets test. What's So superannuation forms part of the, the assessable assets. What ultimately happens is whatever you receive a lower pension on um, is what you'll be assessed on. So if your assets derive a lower pension amount, um, then you'd be re- assessed on your assets and the pension would be paid accordingly. But, yes, you can definitely have, um, subject to those limits on assets and income, a superannuation pension and then also a government-supported age pension. So when I finished um, my medical school training and then started working as a doctor, I went automatically, my employer uh, automatically put me into a super fund and um, at the time I didn't even pay attention to what that super fund was about, what it could do for me, what rates they were charging. Uh, how important is it for people to look at their super fund and and go into detail about what that super fund is doing for them? I think it extends from that medical knowledge, uh, sorry, big pardon, financial knowledge conversation we had a moment ago. And I think that really important is the answer to your question. Now, it doesn't mean that you need to look at it every day. And in the actual fact, I encourage clients not to because we don't, markets, investment markets will be fluctuating, asset values will go up and down. So we don't want to create undue stress and, stress and worry. It's a but bit like weighing time, yourself every day on the scale. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. It doesn't help anyone. Mm. Um, but it is, I think, important to, to take check. And, you know, we talk about with clients uh, a financial health check. Um, and to really understand where you're at financially. Um, it might be once or twice a year that you sort of take check of, of where things are at. Superannuation is no different to that. And just understanding how much am I putting in, uh, what am I investing in, what am I paying fees, um, and, and how it's performing. I think, you know, those, those things are really important just to take check of. 
So what uh, exactly is super choice? The super choice is essentially um, the government's talk, the government speak, if you like, that uh, allows people to choose where their superannuation is directed, where their contributions are, are directed. Um, superannuation choice is something that is available to most of us, but there are some um, some professions that still don't have superannuation choice and their contributions must be sent to a particular fund or a particular mm, scheme. I didn't know that. I, I think that will continue to evolve. There was some legislation recently that said that everyone will have super choice, but it's still something that is continuing to evolve over time. But largely, super choice means you have choice as to where your contributions are paid, into which fund and where. Because mm. there's been a lot of stuff that I've seen certainly this year about, you know, if you're going to make a choice about which super fund to invest in, or put your money into, then you should look at ethical, environmental, social, and governance uh, principles. Uh, can you talk more on that? And should we care? Yeah, for sure. Look, I think it's a really growing topic of conversation for us uh, with our clients. And I think, again, it comes down to that, that knowledge and education piece. Essentially, the way I look at ethical investing, Kash, is there is no clear definition to what is an ethical investment. And so what I try and talk to clients about and, and we have conversations around is, well, what's ethical to you? And that can take us into a whole range of different places and, and down different rabbit holes, but understanding what's ethical to you and then how do we then carry that into an investment plan inside your superannuation? So the way that sort of works, um, before I come to the, the ESG sort of uh, characteristics, but the way that sort of works is um, investors, superannuation hold holders have the option to either look at um, three different types of screening with their investments. So the first one being negative screening, which means that you're actively going out and trying to avoid investing in certain companies or certain industries, um, you know, those that might have a negative impact on society, like, for example, um, ceasing investment in tobacco manufacturers or producers. Arms, um, nuclear energy, gambling, alcohol, exactly. fossil fuels, adult entertainment. <laughs> I think I stole exactly. that from, which book did I read that I stole that from? Ooh. Oh, yeah, I read a book about, uh, I think it's Money, you know, in the Money magazine. They've got a, a really cute little book about super and uh, that's where I got that list from. But there are quite a few things to look um, out for. There really are. Yeah, there really are. And, again, I think it's most important that, People are educated and understand what choices they have and also then applying that to themselves and, and what do they want to be in and out of. I don't think there's any investors out there that are actively seeking to overweight in unethical investments, if you like, but it's really about trying to um, define what's ethical to you and then either negative screening, so getting out of particular investments, or positive screening which involves actively going into companies that are trying to do more good, um, be it in their environmental um, or society, that are trying to do more good and, and overweighting or buying more of those particular investments. Um, and the third sort of screen that we see put in place, Tash, is um, what we call corporate engagement, which is really uh, investors using their size, using their power to advocate for positive change. So that might be, for example, um, using their weight in terms of voting at, a, at an annual general meeting for a 
for an investment for a company to vote for or against something like uh, executive remuneration or um, uh, you know gender bias on boards and and those sorts of things. So those those sorts of screens people can actively look to make and, and choose. Um, environmental, social, and governance factors, as you touched on, touched a second ago, are really looking at um, ESG, sort of a commonly phrased term that we see looking at um, environmental factors like action on climate change or carbon emissions, social factors like we said, employee wellbeing and uh, and stakeholder management, and then governance in terms of things like uh, executive pay and and board diversity. So those sorts of things, um, again, some funds will go out and actively advocate that they're, they're focusing on ESG investments and others might say that they're um, focusing on a particular element. And it's really about understanding what's most important to you. So different strokes for different folks. Absolutely. And yeah, the whole thing about, you know, not, not making it a set and forget thing is that the super, it's like your, your finances overall, but um, re re continually, well, at least once a year, having a look at your super health um, is probably a good idea. And I, I say Absolutely. to my patients, when it comes to your health, uh, you know, if I need a pap smear, for example, uh, remind yourself that maybe it's the month of your birthday to do that. And I would say maybe with um, people's finances, maybe super, um, reviewing that every time you have a birthday or your birthday month. So not too great forget. idea. Yeah. Um, so are most people con concerned about ESG principles or, I mean, do you think that it's just something that's so kind of newly emerging that it's not really something you can comment on? Oh, no, look, I think increasingly so, absolutely. Um, and it's not to say that people have to be, but, again, it's just that awareness and understanding. And I think to somewhat cynically, perhaps, Tash, I think that my industry, the financial services industry, I think has been – creative with their marketing and um, be unlike us as, as an industry to to be like that. But I think we've been creative with our marketing and, and are perhaps um, using the environmental and uh, social and governance factors as a bit of a marketing tool. And again, you know, but there's, there's the sort of phrase that's been coined is greenwashing where, uh, you know, we're doing, we're trying to advocate and advertise that we're doing something that perhaps we're not. And so it's just that understanding for people holding superannuation as to, is my fund doing what I want it to do? And, and that's, as you said, I think it's a good idea to be looking at that every year or so. Do you see many people in their 20s for advice? Or is this something you see more come up in people who are 30 or 40 or 50? Is there an age group that we're, we're all, we're, this is more important, the ESG stuff? Uh, the ESG stuff, I think, is probably more prevalent a conversation topic for the younger generation. Um, and it doesn't mean that uh, the older generation are neglecting that at all and, and those that are retired are not worried about that at all. But I think it's more um, a lot of this information is available more and more to us, be it electronically or otherwise. Um, and so I think it's really that that sort of those conversations are increasing across the board. But yeah, certainly those in their twenties are, are raising it more and more, and the level of awareness is only increasing, which is a which is a really good thing. So who's the best person to see to find out more about your super? Is it somebody who works for the super company, or is it a financial planner? If I have one person I need to speak to about this, who should I speak to first? 
I'd start with you, Tash, and, and I'd start with, and I know everyone's got limited time and, and everyone's busy, but I'd start with you and, and having a think about um, what's important to me in terms of my investments and then starting with even a web search or a, or a conversation, a phone call to your existing superannuation to say, um, what are you doing about these things or are you invested in these things and just understanding what their mantra, what their philosophy is. Um, certainly financial advisors are able to help with that and, and obviously it's our world to look at what sort of investment opportunities are out there and, and what fits with you. Um, they're going to be there to help for those people that want that help but I think it does start with um, with each of us thinking what do we want to be invested in or what what's important to us and then is my super fund aligned to that? Uh, that's where I'd be starting. Yeah, and I know that uh, some super funds have a lot of education that they provide for free for their members and uh, perhaps others don't so much. So in looking for a super fund, I would think that uh, look at one that has a lot of education um, provided free for their members. Uh, certainly agree. something I've learnt. Um, in regards to, um, you know, Dipping into your super. So over the year of COVID, that has been um, a lot of people, I understand, have been allowed access to their super uh, for various reasons. How much of that have you dealt with? So what was interesting with COVID, and, and obviously it's impacted all of us in different ways, but for those that had a significant decrease in their income, uh, what was interesting with COVID was that the government announced that they could withdraw money from superannuation. And the figure was $10,000 last financial year and $10,000 this current financial year. Now, there's some rules, there's some um, checks and balances that must be met in order to be able to access that money. It's been taken up into the tune of, of tens of billions of dollars have been withdrawn from superannuation, which tends to suggest that there's obviously a lot of people that required support. Um, and so that's been unusual in a sense that that money has been able, that we've been able to access superannuation earlier because, as I said, typically it's it's retirement and at least age sixty. But um, that's been taken up and has been well used. And I, I think in addition to that, Tash, that we do have options to access superannuation. Um, there's been a first home owner scheme brought in. Uh, over the last few years, which has allowed people to use some of their superannuation to go towards their first home. How much can uh, they again, access? What's, what's, the, what's the max? Well, it depends on how much they're putting in, Tash, mm-hmm. how much they're putting in and how long, they're, how long they're putting it in for and then how much they're spending on their home. So lots of rules. Um, also accessing superannuation in terms of financial hardship uh, and then also on, on medical grounds as well is something that we've seen over time. Yeah, so going back to my comment about people accessing super for IVF procedures uh, or orthopedics, gastrectomy, so having had, you know, bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery is a big one I've seen. Um, I don't see too much of cancer and radiation therapy, but I know that that exists. And then there's um, mental health as well. Um, So what's been your experience so far? So I think, uh, and I was saying to this to you off there a moment ago, that we haven't seen too many clients access superannuation money for medical reasons. Now, they definitely can, 
there are restrictions, so it's not a clear cut. We can we can tap into our superannuation, and essentially what has to happen, Ash, is that we apply to the ATO. I mean, I think the first thing I'd do is um, contact my super fund and, and ask the question as to can I access my money, and then ultimately what happens is for severe financial hardship, you contact your super fund uh, and make an application. If we're accessing money on compassionate grounds, uh, on medical, including medical grounds, then it's application to the Australian Tax Office. They have a process they go through, which requires sign-off from uh, from from at least two doctors, and and essentially um, they have a list of rules and regulations that they need to tick off to allow you to access that money. But certainly, um, as you say, for the for the reasons you noted a moment ago, it is something that's available to people subject to those checks being being met. And the fact that you haven't seen too many people, could that be because of the population or the, the people you see? Because your practice is mainly medical doctors, isn't it? Mm, it is. That's yeah. correct, yes. So most doctors maybe don't need to dip into their super. Um, that's right. And, and I think maybe, too. Yeah, maybe it's that. Maybe it's a bit of bias from the group that you see. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I think too, um, depending on what they're claiming for, um, uh, for example, insurance may have kicked in and they may have had some sort of insurance benefit paid. Again, you know, working with those particular clients, they're perhaps as a generalisation um, likely to have or can have more funds available. But, um, yeah, I think that's fair across the board. When I was having a chat with someone about dipping into super when COVID hit, uh, I was strongly advised not to. Uh, if I could avoid it, and I would say that was probably good advice. Uh, what do you think about that? I heard a stat recently, Tasha, and you know, notwithstanding a lot of people that have needed to access money from their superannuation to help during COVID, um, I heard a, heard a, uh, a stat recently that said if we're to withdraw twenty thousand dollars out of our superannuation and we're aged in our thirties. By retirement, based simply on the tax concessions and on compounding growth, um, that same twenty thousand dollars is probably worth somewhere between eighty to one hundred thousand oh, um, dollars. So it's massive just with those with compounding. Mm. Uh, so whilst it's an option, um, I think for that reason, it's something we should be wary of that we are biting into our superannuation retirement savings and, and we're missing potentially the compounding returns and, and tax concessions available too. So if someone has some spare cash uh, at the end of the week and they have a mortgage on their home, should they be putting that money into their super or paying off their mortgage? It's a trade-off and I know that's the easy answer but any money, it's really important to note that any money we put inside superannuation is locked away for an extended period. Barring something unforeseen happening to us, uh, it's it's locked away for an extended period to our retirement. The way I look at that question, Tash, is we need money available to us and, and we do want to target paying down the home loan. So it's the balance then with putting the money into superannuation. But to, to break that down a little bit, the money that we put into superannuation up to 25000 and including our employer contributions um, is essentially taxed at 15%. It's taxed at 30% if we're earning over $250,000. Mm. 
But let's say we put that money, extra money we have at the end of the week into superannuation. Is that gross or net? Uh, that's taxable income. Mm. Taxable income. Yep. Um, so if we're putting extra money into superannuation, we can claim a tax deduction and essentially that will allow us to pay tax at 15% rather than paying tax at our marginal tax rate. So there's potentially a tax saving for people to make. And let's say uh, an individual's marginal tax rate is 30% and they're putting super in, putting extra money into super and able to claim a tax deduction, uh, which means they pay tax at 15% on that money. Well, there's a, there's a significant tax saving to be had by putting that money into super. So that's the carrot. But on the flip side, we do want to target getting rid of the home loan and um, ultimately retiring debt-free. So I think it's a balance. But, yes, you know, I do encourage people to be thinking about putting more money into superannuation where their cash flow allows them to do so, uh, and particularly up to the $25,000 pre-tax annual limit. I think it does make sense to be thinking about extra super contribution. By the time people retire in Australia, how many of those people own their home? Do we know? Good do you question. have any stats I, on that? Yeah, I don't have any stats off the top of my head touch on that question. Look, I think aspirationally we like to see clients retire debt-free and, and we like to see clients, um, you know, my role as a financial planner is really to help them understand what are the options and, and then help them make informed decisions. So by that I mean... Um, helping them understand what are the options and where are they going to get to and then how does that vary if they do X, Y, Z. And and one of our plans, one of our goals for clients typically is to help them to be financially independent so they can choose to work rather than need to work at some point in the future. And so typically, depending upon where they fall in terms of priorities and um, their own priorities, we look to get rid of the home loan because the home loan is seen from a, a tax perspective as, as non-deductible debt um, and so it is a target for us to pay down. But, yeah, in terms of what percentage, I don't know, but it's certainly what we aspire to see clients work towards. The only other thing I'd say to that, though, is Tash, that if we only focus on repaying the home loan and we get to retirement and we haven't been investing money where we can in something else like superannuation, then we may need to sell the home in future to be able to fund our retirement. So it's that real real balancing act at, at play. Mm, Got to be savvy with your money. Tricky. It is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't – I agree. And I agree. Um, obviously a financial planner can help people decide where they invest their money. Um, how, do you, how does one go about choosing a financial planner? So what I think a financial planner should be doing, Tash, is – helping you understand what's important to you and why and having a conversation with you around, well, what do you fundamentally want to do and, and what's driving those decisions? And then, as I said a moment ago, helping educate you as to what are the options and what's the best path forward. Um, how do you go about finding one? Well, they're not for everyone. Not everyone, I think, needs a financial planner, but what they're designed to do is really to help support your thinking and, and your plans. Um, and, I mean, in terms of finding them, um, it might be colleagues or, or friends that are using one. Um, there is websites like the Financial Planning Association, which, which offer the ability to search through planners that really um, resonate with you and 
can talk to you in language that you understand and, and get. You know, I think it's important clients buy into the plan and understand the plan to the extent that they want to um, and then go from there. But, look, I'd start with um, friends, colleagues, family, and then searching um, unbiased tools like the Financial Planning Association or the um, My Money website, the government website, also has a register of all financial planners who have met their qualification requirements, education requirements online. Right. So just like you shop for a doctor, you need to look at their qualifications. The same applies for a financial planner. Yes, definitely. And um, the other thing I wanted to ask about in regards to super was this whole thing around super fund fees and and, and how fees are really important and how uh, you know they can make a, a big difference as to how much you retire on. Again, how much of a big deal is this? Massive. That's, I think, look, super fund deal fees are a really big deal. Um, and, and why I say that with such emphasis is that the difference between a, a 1%, 2 or 3% fee over time, uh, you know, with compounding can make a hell of a lot of difference to your retirement savings. And how superannuation fees typically work, uh, there's administration fees for running the investment and then there's investment fees payable for uh, investing money. And what's really important for people to look at is um, what are those fees and then how am I paying them? So am I paying them directly? Is there a transaction on my super statement that says X dollars in fees has gone out, um, which is a direct fee, and then, or am I paying them, and it could be an and or, am I paying them indirectly? So are they inbuilt? into the investments themselves and essentially you're getting a return net of the fee. Uh, so I think it's really important to take check of both those things uh, and dive a little bit deeper into the headline that says my super fund is low cost, um, really making sure that both direct and indirect fees are taken into that equation and, uh, and are looked at. And what are the top performing super funds for 2020? Have you Are you able to talk on that? Yeah, I had a look at that, Tash, and I think, um, I mean, a, a Google search will bring that up for, for listeners. What I'd sort of be trying to make people aware of is, um, and it's the most rolled out line perhaps in financial services, being that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. And, and the way I look at that is, Whilst the available top-performing funds are available online, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be the best-performing going forward. And, and so I'd just be cautioning, cautioning against um, following the herd, if you like, into the current best-performing fund because it won't necessarily be the best-performing fund ongoing. And so, so what that means is – sorry, that's what that means is it might be looking at consistency of returns over an extended period – but also I think it's applying what's relevant to you in terms of um, your risk appetite because super funds are going to invest in different things, which is going to be either more or less risky and then current correspondingly generate either a, a more or lesser return. Um, but taking check of your own risk appetite, the fees, uh, and as we touched on earlier, whether the investments are aligned to, to you and, and your beliefs. Mm, interesting. I've just Googled that. 
And Australian Super comes up first. Hot Plus, Host Plus Personal Super, Statewide Super Employer, Vision Personal. And I was, of course, trying to find mine and mine came up as what? One, two, three, four, five, six. Aware Super. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, not a, not a, not a, uh, and, you know, the other thing I'd make people aware of too is that we talk about risk in, in terms of investing. Well, in the investment universe, the greater the level of risk we take on, the greater the expected return, but also the bumpier the ride. And by risk, I mean exposure to um, assets that are going to generate income, but also capital return and the potential for capital loss. So an example of that is of shares, for example. Mm. Mm. So if, if, if Superfund 1 is investing more money in shares than Superfund 2, which is perhaps more stable and investing more money in cash, we'd expect a better return in Superfund 1 over time. But also what's important when we're looking at, and this is why I sort of talk about consistency of returns, because um, what's important is, is that fund, what's the variability? You know, is that fund going up and down? Is it more of a roller coaster ride? And am I comfortable with that than sitting in something that's more conservative but more stable? Mm. Um, so look, looking a bit beyond performance is what I'd, what I'd stress to people. It's so complicated, Super, isn't it? A lot going on. There is a lot <laughs> going on, yes. And, and binding beneficiaries. Can you tell us more about what that is? So binding beneficiary is essentially you making a nomination as to who receives your superannuation monies upon your passing. So, so what happens to us is once we pass away, superannuation doesn't necessarily form part of our estate, uh, part of our and is dealt with by a will. It can be dealt with separately. Uh, and so what a nomination is, is whilst you're alive, it's you making a declaration as to who you want to receive your superannuation monies when you're no longer here. Uh, it can be sent straight to your estate. It can be sent to, um, for example, your, your spouse or your children. Um, when we make a binding nomination, that is essentially saying that I have made this declaration and it's definitive. My superannuation fund, the trustees of the superannuation fund must follow my instructions. The alternative is to have a non-binding, which means essentially you've made a suggestion and the trustees will dictate where the money gets sent um, and they have a, a process they follow to do so. But I, I must admit, I like the idea of a binding nomination so that people have certainty as to my money will go here um, and the other thing to be aware of is whether those nominations are lapsing or non-lapsing. So obviously lapsing means that they have a certain time period for which they're good for, uh, and non-lapsing means they last. And again, reason to be thinking and, re and reviewing superannuation um, relatively regularly because those things might change. Uh, and if your money is going, this is a binding nomination and um, you've nominated someone that ultimately you don't want to receive your money when you pass, um, they're getting the money. Yeah, so, so they they could put the, that money anywhere they wanted, so they could invest into tobacco if they wanted, for example. Upon receiving it? From, yeah. Yes, potentially, yes. Yeah, so goodness. Please, people, make sure you have a binding beneficiary. Absolutely, God, absolutely. And, I don't like the idea of that at all. And, and tax is another thing there, Tasha. There isn't a death tax per se in, in Australia, but there is potentially tax to pay 
on your superannuation money is dependent upon who receives it upon your passing. Um, so a spouse or, or financially dependent children won't pay any tax on receiving superannuation monies, um, but others may. And, and so it's just to be aware of and, again, think about and, and advisors can give you um, guidance on this, as can, as can lawyers, but um, just to be aware of who's going to receive my money and, and what tax they might be payable. What, what's the maximum tax they'd have to pay? 15%. Oh, okay. And how about insurances through superannuation? Does every super fund have at least one um, form of insurance as a default that they offer? So they do. Well, yeah, typically I think they do, Tash. That, that superannuation insurances um, typically cover life, total and permanent disability and income protection or, or a combination of those. Um, there was, up until a couple of years ago, um, it was essentially an opt-out scheme. So there was a default level of cover offered for everyone, uh, insurance cover offered for everyone with a superannuation account. That changed to now an opt-in scheme. So people need to be opting into paying for their insurance premiums inside from their superannuation monies. Um, certainly an area that, again, making sure you're aware of what the level of cover you have is it enough? Is it too much if you've got other cover outside of your superannuation? Um, or do I have multiple super accounts with multiple insurance um, benefits in there? And will they be paying in the event of claim? Will they all be paying in the event of claim? So um, insurance definitely inside superannuation, yes. But again, another thing to be wary of when we're going through that checklist, if you like, of, of what to be thinking about. And you often read or come across this whole thing about lost super. How many people have lost super that they haven't looked into? Too many. There's <laughs> billions of dollars of, of superannuation that, um, pleasingly, one of the good things that's happened with superannuation over the last few years is that um, whereas previously low balances could be um, sort of whittled away with, with fees, um, the government took some initiative and said, well, if people are contributing to superannuation, we want their balances to be protected. And they essentially now have uh, something called the Oz Super Fund, which is a, basically a government-run super fund for lost super. But in saying that, it's it's not a place you necessarily want your superannuation monies to be. Um, so I know via MyGov or looking online that you can do a bit of a search for yourself and say, do I have lost super? You know, is the job I had at uni or... Um, the part-time job I had at some point contributing to a default fund that I perhaps didn't pay any attention to and haven't looked at, well, I think it makes do those searches and be aware of what's out there and, and look to combine where it's appropriate and um, try and take check of things because, yeah, far too much money is in lost superannuation accounts to us for sure. By the time people reach retirement, we say we have a woman and a man, um, they always – I always, again, read that men always have more in super than women and I kind of understand that because usually men don't take time off to have kids. It's, it's the women that do. So because they're out of the workforce more, uh, women have less. But is it significantly less? It is. Uh, there's been some measures that I'll come back to in a moment that, that have been put in place to help address that. But looking at, I mean, average stats, Tash, at this point, say that the difference, um, the average superannuation balance for someone 
at the age of 60 at present. Um, it's about 181,000 for a male. It's about 155,000 for a female. Now, the balance that the one of the government agencies, um, the Australian Association of Superannuation Funds, predicts we need to have a comfortable retirement is 430,000. So both those balances are well and truly south of, of where they need to be. Um, the measures that the government have put in place to help people that take time out of the workforce, help them catch up with super contributions. Um, there's options to um, use your concessional or pre-tax contributions. Um, if you're not getting to the $25,000 limit, which a lot of us aren't, then we can carry over the unused portion. So essentially 25,000 less whatever went in, we can carry that over now for up to five years. So we can essentially carry forward a uh, tax deduction for making the contribution for up to five years. Um, in addition, there are measures like spouse contributions or the government co-contribution, um, which are all designed to help boost people's super balances when they're looking to to make contributions. So certainly something we should all be aware of, but yes, the balance at present for females, the average balance is is lower than males. You mentioned $430,000. Is that uh, assuming, you know, a very basic living? Yeah, it is. And is that's, that assuming right. no, access or no access to pension or access to pension? That's what, this uh, is so where that I get would, confused. Yeah, for sure. So the, the access to pension, so whatever is in your superannuation, and, and you said age 67 previously, so age 67 is when the age pension does become available typically to us. Um, so you might be able to access your superannuation money prior to the point of you being eligible for the age pension. Um, but assuming you're eligible for both, your superannuation balance goes into the pool in terms of assessing your assets for the age pension or for the Centrelink testing. Um, so what is the current um, pension per week for a uh, single um, versus a couple? $944 per fortnight, fortnight. Um, is, the, is the maximum pension for a single. Um, the couple allowance, I don't have to the top of my head, but um, slightly more. And, and you assess differently as to whether you're a single or a couple. Um, and then there's a number of different supplements available in terms of um, to help with, uh, for example, utility costs or medical costs. But, yeah, 944 per fortnight is the current maximum pension available to. I'm looking to forward people. to my um, much cheaper travel public transport the super, you know, the pension pension travellers' fees are pretty cheap. Um, indeed they are. Yeah, indeed they are. And, and some of those are, are, are applicable outside of that age pension. So there's something called the, the Seniors Healthcare Card, which is um, assessed on your income, but it's also independent of your age pension assessment. So, um, again, it's a bit like the superannuation discussion in terms of comparing and understanding what the options are. I, I think for people thinking about applying for the age pension, it's, it's probably a conversation with, uh, with Centrelink and perhaps some searching online to see, look, what my eligibility might be. Um, and exactly, as you say, things like transport, utilities, it all, it all helps. Um, 
and so certainly it's in our in our uh, thinking should be in our thinking to be looking at, at what's available to us. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to super that we need to know about? I think Tash, it's just as I've said, just to take check of, of where where you're at in terms of your superannuation, um, to think about what's important to you, and then correspondingly, what can your super fund do, and, and are they aligned? Uh, and if that means a particular type of ethical investment um, or or not, it's really looking at is there an alignment. Uh, and doing your homework to understand what's available to you. Uh, and if you need help to be looking online, but then to seek advice from a, uh, a registered financial planner to to help if needs be. I think that's the, the sort of the takeaway message. Actually, I have one last question for you. If I wanted to move super funds, how easy is that to do? Uh, it's very easy. So there's uh, a superannuation rollover form um, either issued by the superannuation provider you're looking to go into, or if you Google, um, there's a an a Australian tax office version, a default version of a superannuation rollover. But all you need uh, is essentially you need the details of your current super, account number, name, and the details of your new superannuation um, provider, and then it's sending the instruction to them to to process the rollover. Uh, and again, a lot of that information, people might think, well, where do I get that information? A lot of that information will be available under your MyGov access um, or your accountant may be able to give that to you because they have information to your superannuation providers. Um, but yeah, it, it's a simple form to access that, that rollover. Awesome. Can I ask you some more personal questions now? Yeah, for sure, Tash. <laughs> uh, which people in your life have been your biggest inspirations, William? I was thinking about this one uh, over the last few days, Clash, and I think the obvious answer is my parents who uh, have made a massive impact on my life and continue to do so today. And then um, also my wife and children now. So um, they continue to inspire me and, uh, and get me out of bed in the morning, sometimes super early in the morning um, with something exciting and something interesting that they're, they're looking into and um, sort of makes you want to jump up and, and get going. Um, and I think professionally uh, in terms of we have some really good mentors with, with where I work and, and have fortunately I've had that across the journey so far with people that uh, are on the same page in terms of sharing ideas and, and looking at understanding and ultimately trying to help. And I think that's the biggest um, inspiration and motivation for doing what I do, and as I'm sure it is for you, Tash, in terms of, of your field in, in the medical world, but um, really trying to get a buzz out of trying to help and, um, in my case, helping with, with numbers and, and, as I said, understanding what are the options and the best path, best path forward is sort of where I get a real buzz and, and inspiration from. So did you get a lot of financial education from your parents? I think looking back on it now, Yes, we, you know, we did have conversations and, and a lot of it, you know, wasn't sitting down and here's a notebook, take notes sort of operation at all, but it was really just um, a constant understanding of um, just being aware, being aware of, of what you're earning, what you're spending. I mean, it starts, it might start with things like pocket money and, you know, way back in terms of, um, you know, if you're, you can't spend more than you have and, and if you do, um, you have to be prepared to um, plug that hole somehow. And, and that might mean 
um, seeking money from others, whether it be a bank or something like that for buying a house or, or trying to cut your expenditure or, or increase your income. I mean, there's, there's strings that people have to pull and being aware. And I think that's what I grew up with, sort of that awareness that um, just be mindful of, of what's happening around you. And how about you educating your kids? Do you do that financially? Try to. I mean, we don't want, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in enjoying money and, and not making it an issue um, and, and trying to, uh, there's lots of sayings about there's no ATM in the graveyard and all those sorts of things that um, <laughs> well, there might you know, be. not wanting, there might be <laughs> when we get there, but not wanting to take money to the grave. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's that balance between enjoying money, um, spending things on, spending money on things you're passionate about, but also being aware and have that awareness. And I think, it's interesting with with my two daughters. One of them is very good at that. Um, one of them needs something all the time um, and is very keen to be spending her money. So um, different philosophies that they already have developed, even though their uh, their father is a financial advisor. But um, it's just again really about that awareness and education as much as we can to not drill it into them and, and be worried about every dollar, but. Um, just have that awareness in terms of what do I have, what am I spending, and, and what are my options. I'm always really inspired by people who are thrifty with their money. So they like spending money, but they go, well, okay, I'm actually going to buy this second hand, or I'm going to barter for a better price, or I wait for that sale. I, I really appreciate people like that because I, I, again, I like spending money, but then I also realize there's actually clever ways to do that. Um, rather right. than buying the latest, I don't know, Gucci bag that's come out on sale that's worth $12,000, maybe do go online, get it second or third hand where it's much cheaper or, you know, I, I, I'm really inspired by people that do that and, and I know that there's lots, there's lots of information now available to people on how you can do that, especially blogs and websites and, sure. and Instagram. There's, there's so much about that kind of circular economy where – because it's not good for me now doesn't mean it can't be good for somebody else. Why can't I give that away? And often when, you know, they have those council cleanups and people put things out on the street, I'm always inspired by those people who you can see actually looking through that stuff on the street to see, oh, what is it here that I can use? Um, Because, you know, I, I just think it's such a clever way of spending but not too much. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing, you know, we talk about awareness. I've talked about that a lot, Tash, but I think too, um, keeping up with the Joneses, trying to keep up with the Joneses is really dangerous. And I and totally agree us, with that one. You know, a lot of us see things online and, and social media really fuels that, um, seeing what other people are up to, but we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. And, you know, a lot of client conversations, and we try and steer them away from this, but they sometimes take us to places with, well, so-and-so is doing this and um, we just don't know what's going on behind closed doors. So I really try and talk to clients about what's important to you and, and be aware of your circumstances and not be worried about what the Joneses are up to. Yeah, I, I think that that is the key point for this whole podcast, not keeping up with the Joneses because I as a doctor especially see a lot of other doctors trying to keep up with the Joneses. <laughs> because that's just what happens. That's what I see. And I often think to myself, why? You know, you don't 
you don't necessarily have to do that. Um, but it's interesting in, in what in what circles people move people move in and and what pressures they feel. Um, you mentioned earlier um, the Barefoot Investor, the book. Uh, have you read that book? I have. And uh, what do you think yeah. of it? Look, I think uh, I enjoyed it. I think anyone that reads them reads it is doing themselves a favour because it's all about increasing financial knowledge and, and literacy. And and as I said earlier, that's a really good thing. And I think the barefoot puts it in in a easy to understand form, which is great. Um, the one thing I I look at and think just be mindful of is um, it's a little bit like the Pied Piper. Don't follow what they say blindly and not just the barefoot, but anyone you read um, or hear or, or watch, don't follow them blindly and, and make sure you take note of what they're saying, but then also apply that to your own circumstances. Um, and an example of that touch might be um, if you're saving to buy a house and you might buy the house in the next six months, then don't be investing your deposit in the share market because someone said, I've got a good tip. Because the risk you take on in doing so might mean that your deposit becomes much less than you'd otherwise planned. So I think it's really important to read, take as much as you can in, watch, take as much as you can and, and take note, but then definitely don't fail to apply it to your own circumstances and make sure it matches up. Are there any other financial books that you would recommend our audience? Uh, I really like uh, there's a, a scribe for the New York Times, a guy by the name of Carl Richards, um, who is um, the sketch guy who oh, essentially his book. premise. You do? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and essentially his premise is he makes it simple with diagrams on the back of an envelope, on a napkin, and, and trying to explain um, sometimes some really complex financial things. And I think he tries to, to make things easy to understand. So I, I subscribe to his stuff. I like what he does. Um, and as I said, the barefoot, others that come out, um, Noel Whitaker and um, there's, there's, is, has written some good things. There's some articles in the papers, particularly on the weekend in, in the money sections, which some people might find really dry and, and, and rightfully so. But um, sometimes it might be just looking at the headline and saying, is there something that goes my interest? Um, and if you can take one or two notes or, or, or pearls of wisdom from that, then great. You're doing yourself a favour. Yeah, I think Whitaker's good as well. I've got a couple of his books. Yeah, straight, excellent. Straight talking. Yeah, I like that, kind of the Aussie way. Exactly. <laughs> um, how about songs that make you happy, Will? So I grew up, I'm a child of the 90s, or the early 90s in particular, and so a Britpop tragic Tash, um, um, Britpop and, and sort of grunge music were massive when I was growing up. Um, huge Oasis fan and um, so the song that I think of or when I hear, I think of um, lots of happy times and um, looking back is, is the song Don't Look Back in Anger, which is a bit of a strange one to make you happy. But um, <laughs> I can think of, yeah, lots of good times had singing and, and dancing to, to that song right through even now. Uh, heaven forbid, but um, yeah, I think that'll be the song. Something by Oasis, and, and certainly "Don't Look Back in Anger" was one that jumped out. Yeah, Oasis brings back memories too of the nineties. Um, Absolutely. Dream collaboration? Do you have one? No, I couldn't really put one together, Tash. To be honest, oh, maybe that'll be your two hundred two one thing. That's right. I'll get back to you. <laughs> 
And my last question is top tips for being a kick-ass financial planner. Do you have any for us? I think to understand your client, uh, to make sure that you listen and learn what's important to them and, and really critically why. Um, so that you can make sure that any advice that you have is, is relevant and also gets the buy-in that you need, particularly when you're making and suggesting a change that's very different to what they're currently doing. Um, we touched on this a lot, but to really to educate and empower people um, to help clients make informed decisions, to explain their options uh, and help them understand to the extent that they want to. You know, not everyone should see a financial planner and, and think that they have to be a financial expert post their discussions, but to buy into and understand the extent that you want to um, and to drop the jargon, to sort of try and keep things simple um, and explain things. You know, there's um, lots of anecdotes we can come up with to, to, to keep things simple um, or, or to drop the, drop the BS, but um, we really want to make sure that trying to talk to clients and, and make sure that you resonate in terms that they understand and, and appreciate and, and can follow through with. Thank you so much, Will. I know that you've um, you've written some articles for DPM on various financial planning topics, so I'm going to put that in the podcast uh, show notes for our listeners to listen to or to read rather. Um, thank you so much for educating me today and as a subsequent um, point of that, my listeners as well. So thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me, Tess. Pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with William Ezzy. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, call people like an interview or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay Fanny Tabulous.